Well, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. Today is the 23rd of April, and if you're listening to the show on the 23rd of April, it's live, and I'm glad you could join us. Hope you'll join the conversation a little bit later because today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Chris Martinick, who's here from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. We're going to be talking about poisonous plant awareness for large and small animals, the things that are around us that could harm our pets. It's an important topic, and I'm glad you're listening right now. We'll be back with Animal Airwaves Live after this. Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. Today's April 23rd, 2016. So glad you could tune in. This afternoon's show could be very helpful to many of you who have animals around the house and also plants around the house, and that is probably everybody listening to this show. And it's important because many animals are allergic or many kinds of uh, plants are problems for many different kinds of animals. And we're about to find out a lot more about that. Uh, Back on the show, joining me today is Dr. Chris Martinick from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome back. I'm glad you could be here. Thank you very much, Dana. It's nice to be back. Well, we have discussed, you know, sort of toxic substances to animals before. And there's certainly many things around the house that are not plant life that can be harmful to our animal friends. And yet we probably miss out on a lot of the plants that exist around us that could potentially be harmful to animals because some of it probably just doesn't even occur to us. Many of us know that things like chocolate is not good for dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, Even grapes I've heard are not good for dogs. Mm -hmm. But And many of us have even probably heard about sago palms. I know I've discussed it on the show before. However, we're going to talk today about many other things that kind of fly under the radar, at least in my consciousness, of being hazardous to animals. But before we get too far into it, maybe a good way to begin is to discuss uh, with – regarding plants, why is it that plants even have – this potential to be toxic to animals? Sure. Excellent question. So uh, plants uh, produce a number of of chemicals. Uh, They're termed secondary metabolites. Uh, So these are metabolites that aren't needed for basic functions of life, uh, but rather they're produced uh, to um, be protective agents against uh, herbivores, so uh, to avoid predation from animals. And plants will make more chemical uh, if there's higher predation. Uh, They also make chemicals as natural pesticides, so the bugs don't eat them. Okay. So this uh, immediately makes me respect these plants in in a lot of different ways. It, It is not unlike... Animals, uh, particularly different kinds of uh, insects uh, or um, I know that there are some sort of reptiles and amphibians, right, that have a toxicity in them, fish maybe, that uh, because of this, they – animals – um, cannot really consume them, and somehow animals learn this lesson. But it occurs to me that perhaps the purpose for this show is to talk about some of these plants that are toxic to animals because animals may not put two and two together and know that these substances are potentially harmful. Mm -hmm. And so though it makes sense that plants would have this as a defense mechanism, it is – it occurs to me that uh, an animal might consume some of these plants and really be harmed and never know that the plant was harmful to begin with. Yeah. So what – I think from the plant's point of view, what the ideal um, chemical is, is one that's not going to directly kill the animal. Um, that way, the offspring of the animal can learn that they shouldn't eat that plant. And so those those uh, lessons are passed down from generation to generation. 
Um, you also want to produce chemicals that aren't going to be harmful to the plants themselves. Mm. Uh, so many of the compounds that plants produce act on the central nervous system of animals and on the, uh, the cardiovascular system as well. And when it comes to being insect repellent, um, it is that makes a lot of sense because you know, as anybody who follows a lot of different uh, agricultural stories would know, there are insects that spread diseases to plants. Um, for instance, citrus greening, I understand, is caused by some sort of beetle that spreads a kind of infection that goes and gets in the trees. And if only trees had some sort of natural kind of defense against this uh, insect. And yet we're going to be talking today about some uh, plants that are toxic to animals potentially that are not toxic to insects. Uh, that is true. Yes. Yeah, so some of the uh, compounds that uh, plants produce directly affect, as I mentioned, the cardiovascular system of, of, of vertebrates and uh, small and large animals and, and the insects, maybe not as much. But one important thing to keep in mind is that plants, when they produce these toxins, are not just producing uh, one or two. There can be hundreds, if not thousands, of these secondary metabolites. And so one plant can produce different chemicals that might affect small and large animals, but also chemicals that ward off insects. And it's thousands of years of evolution is what it is. If only for my sake, can we kind of break down a little bit more secondary metabolites? So you said that these are substances that are not needed by the animals to, in order to... Not needed by the plants. Not needed by the plants. So the plants need those primary metabolites to, uh, for, for, for life. Okay. And these secondary metabolites they can do without, but just over time they've developed these, these protective compounds to, to do what they do. And, and there could be them. many in any given plant. Correct. Okay. Yes. Now, we can sort of talk broadly about large versus small animals or different kinds of plants and, and maybe – just for the sake of the listeners, let's begin with the plants and especially ones that are more common in Florida because many people listening to the show will go out into their gardens, especially now that it's spring, and discover, oh my gosh, you know, I really have a lot of these things and I never even thought about them as being potentially dangerous to animal life. Sure. Yeah. So some of the, I mean, with Florida, beautiful tropical weather, um, we do get a lot of tropical plants here. And uh, many of these plants are those that produce these compounds. Um, sago palm is probably the most uh, prevalent and ubiquitous uh, um, plant in terms of uh, a poison plant here in Florida. So the UF Veterinary Hospital gets quite a few calls uh, for toxicity due to this plant. And it's largely dogs uh -huh. uh, that'll ingest the seeds and the leaves of sago palms. And the compounds in these plants can be uh, hepatotoxic or toxic to the liver. And so unfortunately, these animals could experience uh, liver failure after ingesting significant amounts. Great. So uh, let's kind of break this down too. I want to understand the process uh, and the function that the liver performs because it's a vital one. Correct. Yes. yes. Uh, explain sort of what so the, the liver, liver is. Very good question. Is absolutely necessary for the breakdown of chemicals. So in the body, it is really the tissue that is responsible for um, the breakdown and the transformation of chemicals so they can be excreted from the body. And when an animal goes into liver failure, you have a buildup of these toxic compounds um, produced endogenously and uh, chemicals coming from the outside world and the animal can succumb. So is it true then that the liver of mammals, uh, in this case our sort of household pets, they can handle – um, more or less of these toxins uh, based on what? The malignity of the toxin itself, right? So if you eat just a little bit of it, you maybe haven't consumed enough to really be lethal or some plants are just so toxic that even a little of it can be dangerous. Absolutely. So there's uh, an old adage, 
in toxicology, the dose makes the poison, and uh, any quantity in a large enough dose can be potentially harmful. And you're right, some of these compounds can be uh, very highly abundant in the plant in different parts of the plant or even at different times of the year. So plants can ramp up or uh, shut down the production of these uh, compounds in a seasonal way. Now, that is fascinating, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me if I think of these toxins as being there as a defense mechanism. For instance, what good would it really do a plant to only have a kind of toxin um, in one season when an animal or other creature might consume it or harm it or prey on it mm-hmm. at all times of the year? Sure. Um, so, And that's a great question again. So um, you can think of it as uh, early budding plants. A lot of these young shoots, young plants have high levels of the toxin. You can just picture an animal coming to eat this very small budding plant mm. and taking a big chunk of it. Um, you know, that plant is not going to survive. But bigger plants that have had time to grow maybe throughout the season, uh, bigger herbs, they can tolerate a little bit more in terms of losing a few branches. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of times smaller, younger plants have higher levels of these toxic compounds, um, So sort of an added protection. Yeah. yeah. While talking about the sago palm, it's probably important to note that Every part of the sago palm is potentially dangerous. Correct. Yeah. Now, that includes the leaves and the seeds, as yes. you say. And most cats probably wouldn't be especially enticed by something like a seed or a leaf. Uh, but dogs are well known for kind of getting into just about anything. Yeah. And the... Dose makes the poison. How much of a sago palm might a dog need to consume before it becomes quite risky and a pet owner should seek veterinary care? Yeah, I think the sago palm is a special case. I think any ingestion of the seeds, just even one or two, warrants a trip to the uh, to the hospital for the for the animal because it's such a dangerous situation. Unfortunately, uh, approximately thirty percent of uh, dogs will succumb to this toxicosis. So it has a very high mortality rate compared to other types of plants. So it can be a a serious situation, and I would recommend uh, a trip to the uh, veterinary hospital. I've uh, recommended to friends in the past who have sago palms and dogs, hey, maybe you should reconsider sort of your landscaping here just to avoid a potential catastrophe, which would be so unfortunate. Now, the truth is that people who kind of are able to supervise their pets, uh, take their dogs out on leashes, for instance, might avoid any kind of calamity. But if you have this uh, sago palm, and many people do, I see it Mm -hmm. all over town. I see it throughout the campus of the University of Florida. And that means it's pretty uh, popular. Uh, if your dog has a big yard to sort of romp around in, it might just find this on your property and could potentially get into danger. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's really important that owners carefully watch their animals and and really determine whether or not there's a propensity to to eat plants or, or to get into you know, these seeds and, and to ingest these. Uh, so some animals might not be interested at all in the plants that mm-hmm. are out there, but others might be a little bit more inquisitive and playful and and want to get into those types of plants. So definitely a word of caution. You're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill speaking with Dr. Chris Martinick, and we're talking about toxicity. And as we sort of move along, we, we mentioned the sago palm, and, and that's especially dangerous. I had been doing some research research leading up to this program, and I came to discover that there are many, many hundreds of plants that are potentially toxic to animals. Now, I imagine that some of these are of greater or lesser malignity, but the simple fact that so many substances, uh, so many plants can be harmful to our pets is rather alarming, but you might be able to reassure me that many of these are on the list because of the potential, but actually probably in 
fact don't hurt a whole lot of animals. Yeah, there's definitely a range in the in the types of compounds and just how dangerous they can be with some of these plants. And so even though a plant, an ornamental plant, a very beautiful plant that you might bring into your home, uh, it, it might not be very toxic. And I th think a majority of the plants um, would maybe induce uh, gastrointestinal distress and, and, and maybe some vomiting if, if eaten too much. Uh, but that might be the end of it. So, um, yeah, it's important to keep in mind that not every plant is a deadly, dangerous plant to your pet. Okay. So it is good to have some perspective here. But uh, let us at least mention to listeners what some of the other actually quite harmful ones include. We mentioned, of course, the sago palm. Oleander. I've mm -hmm. heard about oleander being dangerous. Um, I've avoided planting oleander. Um, my wife and I have uh, – she has a beautiful garden and the decision was, well, you know, we know the neighbor's cats kind of hang out around here. Just let's avoid potential dangers if we can. Is oleander dangerous to cats and dogs potentially? It is. And it is dangerous because it has such a high level of a, of a very potent compound called uh, oleandrin, among others. Uh, and this compound actually can induce uh, cardiac problems. And so the animal might experience a slowing of the heart rate and um, uh, low blood pressure and uh, may succumb to the toxicosis. Now, we were talking moments ago about how some of these plants are uh, – what did you say? Uh, they affect the liver. What was, uh, what was the word that you used? Oh, hepatotoxic? Hepatotoxic. Great. Uh, doesn't the substance that is potentially dangerous have to reach some of the organs of the body before it can harm the heart? Does it go through the liver before it harms the heart? Yes, they can. Yeah, so the liver might not be able to metabolize the compound completely. Or these compounds are also um, absorbed into the bloodstream, uh, you know, via the, the gastrointestinal tract, and they can also find their way to the heart uh, that route too. Okay. So, you know, the liver is working hard to metabolize all of these toxins in the blood. It might not be able to to get to them all, or to metabolize them fully. And that's where they have their effects. And so some of the cardiotoxic plants have very rapid uh, effects within 30 minutes. Wow. Okay. So within 30 minutes. And this could um, – I hate to frighten people, but if you have a pet um, who is outside, you know, if you're not totally watching your pet and it gets into something um, like oleander, which you say is harmful to the, to the heart, that could quite rapidly – cause your pet a great deal of distress. Yeah, I think it's a it's a um, a very significant uh, situation and absolutely a, a trip to the UF Veterinary Hospital is a, is a very good idea. The central nervous system is something that's also affected by toxic plants. That uh, tell me how the function of that works. If an uh, animal consumes a plant that is potentially dangerous to the central nervous system, how does that move through the body? Yeah, so that too will get into the bloodstream uh, via absorption from the GI tract. And uh, these compounds can cross the blood-brain barrier, um, similar to other compounds, uh, pharmaceuticals that we use, uh, and uh, can elicit central nervous system effects. Some of the clinical signs associated with those compounds uh, would include uh, dizziness, uh, confusion, uh, lethargy, um, prostration, so the animal uh, lying down, um, excitability in some cases. So there's a number of clinical signs that are associated with those, those plants. We've mentioned now sago palm and oleander. What are some other common plants that we have in our gardens that may potentially affect our plant, our animals? Yeah, I think just some plants to to watch out for and, and just to keep in mind that they do produce toxic compounds are, are some beautiful plants that many of us have, and, and those are the milkweeds or the butterfly plants. Um, you know, butterflies lay eggs on these plants because these plants produce toxins that the larvae take up. And uh, the larvae actually uh, use them as a defense mechanism against birds ingesting their, 
their larvae. So again, it's just important to keep in mind that um, uh, milkweeds uh, can be uh, toxic to small animals. Um, ornamental plants, uh, tulips, of course, are a big one for cats. Or sorry, um, uh, lilies are a lilies. big one for, for cats. Okay. Um, and uh, other ornamentals as well. So. so what about lilies is so dangerous to cats? You didn't say dogs. Yeah, so cats seem to be very sensitive to lily toxicoses, and cats are attracted to the bright, big, beautiful flowers of lilies. And uh, the the toxin in lilies hasn't really been identified as of yet. So it's really uh, – there's no clear um, reason um, – well, there's no clear – um, chemical that is uh, responsible for the renal shutdown that cats experience after ingesting a lily. And again, very small amounts of a li lily can, can harm a cat. So am I understanding that it affects the kidneys? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so this is a kidney toxic. Wow. Okay. So we've got so many different kinds of uh, toxicities in, in the ways that the organs are affected from the central nervous system to the heart to the liver and now to the kidneys as well. All of these, of course, are really important internal organs. And so you can't really go with having one that's significantly damaged. The The lilies, there's so many different kinds of lilies. And I've heard, you know, be careful of the lilies that you bring home around Easter time mm -hmm. because your cat may be drawn to these and then you could have a problem on your hands. There are other kind of lilies that just kind of exist out in, you know, in nature and people will plant them in their gardens or even just have them kind of in pots or in the windows of their homes. Would you caution against just about any kind of lily? Yeah, for cats, absolutely. So if there's a cat in the household or a cat nearby, um, lilies uh, should not be brought into the house, uh, in my opinion. Just it's, it's better safe than sorry. Um, you bring up a good point. There are many different uh, species of lilies. And some of the biggest offenders are the Easter lilies, the day lilies, the tiger lilies. Um, many people bring home calla lilies. They're not as toxic, but they can still have um, effects on the renal system. So I, I think it's best that the listeners uh, um, uh, just take that better safe than sorry approach when it comes to lilies. You mentioned milkweed. And that's something that I do see commonly around here. Uh, also something that you see a lot in Florida, and I don't, it may be a native Florida plant, I'm not sure, uh, lantana. Mm -hmm. I see that all over the place, and it's already been blooming for a number of weeks now. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's very ubiquitous in Florida. You can find uh, it growing in the wild uh, along trails, and you can also find it in, in people's gardens. Uh, and it is a plant that can cause uh, liver uh, damage as well. So it is also hepatotoxic. And, um, you know, UF uh, veterinary hospitals get a lot of uh, cases of lantana poisonings from small animals. And they're also um, dangerous to large animals as well. So it's a liver toxicosis. You, you bring up a, a great point. Now, the difference between small animals and large animals uh, and what is toxic to to each, this this might make a difference, right? Now, it's it's I can't think of very many circumstances in which, say, a horse is going to be uh, ingesting some ornamental plants that you might have in your house. Mm -hmm. But I can think of a horse kind of hanging out over a fence and eating some lantana that's just growing Absolutely. everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. So there is a big difference with small and large animals when it comes to I think exposure. So as you point out, what plants are there? What are they being exposed to? And um, some plants that are wild plants that can be grazed upon by larger animals, um, you know, some of these animals can, can grow fond of the taste of some of these plants. And even when there's good food around, just want to eat those poisonous plants. Okay. Now, here's where I'm totally deficient in knowledge. And it doesn't even make a difference because nothing's going to change it. But wouldn't it make more sense for these plants to just taste horrible to everybody? Yeah, and typically they do. Yeah, okay. so typically um, that is the the goal is to taste so bad that you're not going to get eaten. 
Um, but there have been reports in some cases of animals actually getting a little bit um, hooked on the plant. Uh, and uh, even with good feed, you know, the animals will return to these, these uh, other weeds that have these toxic compounds. It, it's the, it's the um, exception rather than the rule. Okay. But it uh, can happen. Horses are out in fields grazing, so are cattle. And any field that isn't as beautifully manicured as a golf course is going to have dandelions in it. Mm-hmm. Dandelions, not really very safe. Yeah, they're kind of under this broad class of uh, Senecio um, genus, and um, we see a lot of these plants. So uh, ragwort is uh, one such plant, um, old uh, man in the spring, so those, uh, you know, plants that uh, kids like to blow the seeds uh, yes. across the fields. Um, those those types of plants can be hepatotoxic as well. So um I shouldn't say all dandelions are. I mean, there's many different species of dandelion, okay. but um, they they could they could pose a problem. Okay, but these ones that are especially toxic that might be out and about, they could could be just grazed on inadvertently by animals that are out in pastures. Correct. Yeah. So um, usually the problems arise when pastures or fields are not uh, kept. Uh, up to up to par for for uh, extended periods. So you have uh, a lot of these uh, very aggressive weeds and, and plants coming into the pasture and, and, and overtaking the pasture. So as long as a farmer uh, does due diligence and and uh, um, really tends to his fields, you know the problems uh, aren't as prevalent as when um, you know these plants just overgrow the whole area. Okay, so it's not advisable then at all to just kind of allow your animal, let's say a horse, for instance, to just go in any old field and just start eating around. Yeah, you really should get into the field before that happens and take a look around and perhaps identify what plants are there and what the potential is for a toxicosis. Horse owners are, are bright folks who are generally pretty knowledgeable about horses themselves. I know from my experience that I see some people sort of riding along with their horses out on the Hawthorne Trail. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can get out and take your horses for a, a stroll. And the Hawthorne Trail is full of plants everywhere, so many different kinds of plants. Surely some of those are potentially dangerous. Um, yeah, I would I would say that some of them are potentially dangerous. Uh, an important point to make is that uh, a lot of the times with with large animals, uh, the the problems really uh, happen when the animal doesn't have good feed and turns to eating these plants. So um, usually, given the option of of high quality feed, animals tend not to eat these poisonous plants. We've mentioned on the show some kinds of food toxicities to animals. And the reason uh, I bring this up is because, you know, animals, like you just said, that have good feed might not turn to things that are not, strictly speaking, animal food. But around the house, we have things that are people food that are potentially toxic to animals. And I know that this is something that many people know very well. Um, Chocolate, particularly like dark chocolate, I guess, or, mm-hmm. or um, is is especially dangerous to dogs in particular. And yet, it tastes really good, <laughs> and dogs would want to eat this yes. just as we want to eat this. What about a dog's insides? Are, are different enough from our own that makes it to where a dog cannot process the chemicals. Yeah, well, let me give you a good example, actually. So when we're talking about foods in the home, uh, some foods that cause problems for small animals that are also plants are onions and garlic. And um, there is a very dramatic difference in how dogs and cats respond to these chemicals, or sorry, these these plants uh, compared to other species. So dogs and cats are actually quite sensitive to garlic and onion um, you know, we've all cried when cutting onions. Sure. Those are sulfur compounds that are released when we cut the onion. And uh, those are the same compounds that actually cause damage to the blood of dog and cats, of dogs and cats. Okay. Now, 
does that mean that it causes damage just sort of through the air, the way that it affects our eyes, or does it the animal have to eat, consume it, eat it? This is after ingestion of okay. the onions and the garlic, and it doesn't take very much to uh, induce a toxicosis. And what happens is that the red blood cells could actually lyse, and um, you know there's oxygen carrying uh, capacity deficit uh, in these animals, so um, it's uh, it's it can be a dire situation too. And just a few. Cloves of garlic is enough to do that for a cat. Okay, not to go too far afield here because I know we're we're talking about poisonous plants, but in a way, I mean, garlic and uh, onions certainly qualify as plants. But let's just say that it's barbecue season, mm-hmm. and you're hanging out with your bros, and the dog's kind of hanging around. Maybe you don't pay attention to your hot dog or your hamburger with onions all over it, yeah. and you turn around. Uh, and the next thing you know, you don't have a hot dog anymore. Or maybe you're just trying to be cool and make friends with the dog and you're just like, here, buddy, and you offer some food. That's a real big no-no. Yeah, and again, it's important to keep in mind that uh, you don't want to um, overreact in those types of situations. If it's a few pieces of onion, it might not be a major problem, but it's important to watch your pet uh, for signs that would include maybe vomiting or lethargy or uh, anorexia or, or not wanting to eat uh, and just to keep a very close uh, watch on those animals. But if it's enough onion, you know, it can be a, a big problem. So, uh, Chocolate is – doesn't – does it require a significant amount of chocolate to be potentially dangerous? I mean that derives from a plant I suppose. Yeah, and it seems that different species are of dogs are, are more or less sensitive to the chocolate. So, you know, it's not that – and of course we know this. Not all dogs are created equal and uh, some can handle more chocolate than others. And so I think it's really important for the uh, the owners of the animals to to watch your pets. They know their pets better than anybody else. And just look for um, signs that might indicate that the animal is experiencing a toxic reaction. And uh, one of the first signs is going to be the GI distress, the, the vomiting, diarrhea, uh, again, lethargy, maybe some depression um, in the animals. I think a good idea, Dr. Mark Nick, is to we'll take a short break and then when we come back, we'll talk about the way that some of uh, these uh, cases are treated and uh, we'll go from there. You're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill speaking with Dr. Chris Martinick from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine about poisonous plant awareness. We're going to take a short break. Be back right after this. Programming on WUFT is sponsored by Daytime Dogs and Friends, offering private dog walking, dog adventures, in-home pet sitting, and overnight stays for dogs, cats, birds, and other pet friends. Daytime Dogs and Friends provides pet care services customized to each client's needs. Serving the Gainesville and surrounding area, Daytime Dogs and Friends is locally owned and operated, fully insured and bonded. More information available at DaytimeDogs.com or 352-219-4246. This week on This American Life, Lulu's grandma has cancer, and her family in China is not telling her. I'm pretty sure a lot of other Americans would feel the way that I felt. It, somebody's going to die, that it's their right to know. Yeah, and uh, but we just think that's not your business. <laughs> you not, you not live with her. That's this week, Saturday afternoon at 2 on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. A lot can happen in a week, and chances are you missed a great episode of Fresh Air. Fresh Air Weekend brings you the best interviews from your favorite writers, actors, musicians, and more. Catch the highlights of the week tailored for Saturday and Sunday. Join us for the next Fresh Air Weekend. Saturday afternoon at 3 on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. Well, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill, 
And I'm speaking today with Dr. Chris Martinick from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. And we're talking today about poisonous plant awareness for large and small animals. We've mentioned already in the first half of the show a number of different plants that are potentially harmful to our pets. Those, of course, include things like sago palm. We mentioned also the uh, oleander plus uh, milkweed and some other butterfly attractants, uh, including lantana. These are some plants that you will see probably in your garden or around town. Uh, Now, let's begin to talk about what animal owners should do if they see their pets consuming some of these dangerous plants because anybody who's ever read a kind of poison control chart there's one on the back of my medicine cabinet and it says in case of ingestion of this induce vomiting in case of ingestion of this don't induce vomiting mm-hmm. is there any any kind of universal advice that you can give to pet owners whose animals may have gotten into something that is toxic yeah i think the the immediate thing to do is to get a hold of your veterinarian uh, right away uh, via the phone and bring the animal in uh, as soon as you can um, for some of these toxicoses, uh, it, it it's not too recommended that uh, you induce vomiting at home. A lot of the times the animals will vomit on their own uh, because these plants are uh, so distasteful and uh, disruptive to the stomach. Um, but that's something that the veterinarian uh, would probably do uh, once there immediately. Um, and plant material takes a little bit of time to digest and to absorb the chemicals. So there's a little bit more time that uh, one might have to get to the veterinarian versus, um, you know, a bottle of aspirin or something. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, the the advice I would give everyone is call your veterinarian immediately. Now, what will a veterinarian do? What's happening behind the scenes? You take your pet and let's say a dog to the veterinarian. You say. My dog has gotten into something. It's clearly experiencing some sort of uh, distress in terms of stomach upset or it's vomiting or something like that. Mm-hmm. What will the veterinarian do to surmise what has been consumed and how dangerous that might be potentially? Yeah, good question. So I would recommend to the owners to make a concerted effort. And I know it's a very stressful time, but um, if you could bring in the plant so the veterinarian can uh, observe the plant uh, and identify it, that would uh, help tremendously in the um, in the treatment process. Uh, a lot of times we don't know what the animal's eaten in terms of plants. So um, some approaches that the veterinarian might take would be uh, induced vomiting, um, activated charcoal to uh, bind the toxins and the plant materials in the stomach, uh, cathartics to help move things out of the GI tract, and uh, and fluids, lots of IV fluids, especially in the case of sago palms. Uh, you want to maintain uh, renal function and uh, liver capacity, and so you need to give fluids. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about this a little bit more. Uh, the the toxins that affect the liver or affect affect the kidneys. Just by kind of sending in more of the good stuff, you can dilute the bad stuff. Well, the uh, the idea is that when you give IV fluids, the kidney is going to maintain a certain level of excretion and function, and so a very dire situation for the kidney is when there's. Uh, low um, pressure, low water, and the kidneys will shut down. So you want to maintain that uh, urine output uh, to keep the kidneys functional. And Mm. it's especially important with lilies. So once a cat uh, goes into renal shutdown and no longer produces uh, urine, that is the most uh, dangerous uh, time for the animal. And that's a late stage of the toxicosis. Okay. Now your cat won't know that it needs to be consuming more water. It's sort of up to you as the pet owner to to take action. Yeah, and, and that's – well, that's something that the veterinarian will do uh, immediately with a lily toxicosis is IV fluids mm-hmm. to maintain that function. So once the cat gets to a certain point where it's no longer urinating, um, that's when the – there's a high, high chance of mortality, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about activated charcoal and, and what that does and – how it helps. Yeah, so it is actually uh, administered as a slurry um, 
through a process called gavage, where they basically put the slurry into the animal's GI tract. I'm sorry, and, none <laughs> of that sounds good. <laughs> no, it's it's a chalky substance. It's it's not a very pleasant uh, um, situation, and uh, you know they use activated charcoal for human toxicities as well. So, uh, if uh, someone was brought into the hospital after accidentally ingesting some uh, medications, pharmaceuticals, they would give activated charcoal. It is um, small, granular-like substance, and because it's so small and granular, it's got a high surface area, so it can bind a lot of the chemical. So it's a very good binder of organic material. And what happens then? Because now you've just got a bunch of slurry with poison attached to it in your body. Well, eventually your body's going to want to get rid of that slurry. Uh And once it does, the chemical is going to go with it. So once the chemical uh, binds the charcoal... It, it stays there. It, mm-hmm. It's very unlikely to leave. And so eventually it will pass through the GI tract and out comes the chemical. I got it. So it by binding to the charcoal, it doesn't get absorbed by the bloodstream – into the bloodstream. It doesn't kind of move its way along and get into the kidneys or the liver and such. Correct. OK. Now, would that be something just about for any kind of toxicity to, to – kind of get ahead of the curve to administer that? Is that one of the first things a veterinarian would do? Yeah, well, because it is such an unpleasant experience, uh, you know, it's, it's stressful, I think, to an owner to to see that happen to their pet. And, you know, of course, the pet doesn't like it as well. So I think the situation needs to call for it. Uh, but it, in the end, it, it's a little bit invasive, but it could be, you know, a better safe than sorry kind of approach. So uh, I think it's a good idea to strongly consider that uh, approach, especially for the the more toxic plants. But I wouldn't give activated charcoal to um, an animal that's eaten one tulip bulb, for example. Tulips, they cause GI distress uh, with enough, but um, it's not a a dire situation. Right. We're talking about quantities of toxin. It's probably very difficult for pet owners to know how much of any particular substance is too much. We we have said that just about any amount of sago palm, very bad. Mm-hmm. What about some of the other ones? I mean, so one lily or what did you say? One tulip may not be um, so especially risky that you would need to, you know, um, yes. suddenly administer this activated charcoal. Um, but – I'd be frightened as a pet owner if I even noticed my cat kind of chewing on a lily. If I walked into the room and saw that happening, what should I spring into action? How should how will I know? Yeah, so there's some top pet poisons that are the biggest offenders, and we have covered quite a few of them today. So lilies, of course, sago palm and oleander. You know, those ones uh, are, are dangerous. Um, and, and I guess it's important for the listeners just to um, just be aware of what some of those top offending plants are. Which ones are the most toxic? There, there might be a handful, 10, 15 or so that you should kind of watch out for. So it's just, I guess, educating yourself uh, on which plants are the, are the worst in terms of uh, potential toxicoses. When the animal is brought into the veterinarian and and you're able to kind of make a determination of what plant was consumed, which uh, I'm always impressed by veterinarians and their knowledge base, but to also have to know some botany too in order (laughs) to to do the important work you have to do. Uh, There is probably a – I guess you guys have reference materials where you can say, okay – you know, this is an unusual sort of toxin if the, you know, I mean, if it's something like a sago palm, that's something you might see more often. But if somebody comes in and it's something that is less familiar, um, you guys, I imagine, have sorts of references where you could say, okay, that's this. And uh, are there guidelines for most plants that are toxic and what to do? I mean, and that probably depends on whether it affects the the kidneys or the liver or the central nervous system. Yeah. So from a veterinarian's point of view, what I think is important is to be aware of those top plants and to be able to identify them in in the case of owners bringing these plants in and saying, hey, my animal ate this plant. Um, And I think, uh, as you mentioned, very, very difficult to ID a plant. 
you know, they're all green, they all have leaves. Uh, but um, what we try to teach the students uh, in the veterinary college is how to systematically identify a plant uh, using stems and leaf shape uh, and um, different characteristics to better be able to determine what that plant might be. In toxicology, it's important to treat the patient, not the poison. So the veterinarian is going to look at the clinical signs and act appropriately uh, to those signs with medications or with other, diff uh, other treatments. Um, and so sometimes it's not terribly important what the animal ate, what plant it was. It's more important to um, provide symptomatic and supportive care and the right treatment for the, the clinical signs. Treat the patient, not the poison. Now, that's there's a lot there. Uh, explain that a, a little bit better for me because uh, I'm sort of imagining uh, what I would like to believe exists, which would be that any given plant might have some sort of antidote that you could just administer mm -hmm. and that would suddenly counteract the toxins. But that's probably just dream thinking. Well, actually, there's uh, a really well-known antidote for a, a very toxic plant called foxglove, which is an ornamental plant. And there's a compound called digoxin, which uh, is actually a um, – it can be administered IV to bind the plant toxin. But you're right. That is the uh, the rare case of of an antidote actually existing. Um, but uh, sometimes they do exist. Yeah. Okay. So you say it's administered uh, through an IV, and then it binds to some of the toxins. Is it possible? And I'm, I mean, I guess if it, I shouldn't even ask this because if it were possible, you guys would already be doing it. I'm not thinking up things that people haven't thought of before, but. You know, if activated charcoal can be given to an animal as some sort of slurry that it has to swallow, uh, is there an equivalent that can go into the bloodstream or can go into, hmm. you know, the the kidneys and and do this work? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's very difficult to achieve. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, um, so as we sort of move here along in the show. Uh, we've talked about a lot of the different plants that are 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 problematic. Um, we've talked a little bit about large animal versus small animal. Um, and one thing I, I should ask, I, I, mentioned, I did not think of as we were talking about large animals, would a large animal need to consume much more of a potentially dangerous substance to feel the effects? Many of these uh, toxic compounds, uh, their effects are reported based on uh, – grams or, or milligrams of plant consumed per kilogram. So, you know, it's it's really based on the body weight of the animal and correct. An animal would have to – a larger animal would need to eat a lot more of the plant to have these effects. Um, some of these plant toxins, again, you just need milligram levels of the to of the plant and it's enough to elicit an effect. So, yeah. very small amounts. So – Statistically speaking, with someone bringing in an animal to a veterinarian's office who the animal has perhaps consumed something dangerous um, and maybe the animal's owner knows what it was, maybe does not, are, are the outcomes generally positive? I don't want to leave people so discouraged. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know um – for a lot of the cases that are, are seen, the outcome is a positive one. Uh, but again, I, I think probably two of the more dangerous scenarios are, again, sago palm and, and lilies and cats. So um, unless you catch those at a specific point in time and start treatment effectively and rapidly, the prognosis is, is quite poor for, for the animal. So I'm prepared, and I'm just speaking for myself here then, Dr. Martinick, not, not you. I'm prepared to just issue a blanket statement and say just don't have sago palms and don't have lilies around if you have pets because it's just not, it's not worth it, right? At least from, from my perspective as someone who has a pet, you know, it's – you earlier said it's better safe than sorry and that's, that's really good advice because you might not – 
think that your pet would ever do this and maybe your pet never will do this and great. But for the – even if it's, you know, one in a thousand chance, that's, you know, for someone who really – uh, loves animals, that could mean the difference between, unfortunately, life and death. Mm. And, um, you know, lilies and sago palms aren't so indispensable to our lives that we can't live without them. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, you should give up onions or garlic uh, <laughs> because that could that could cause, uh, uh, you know, taste to change a, a bit. But, you know, I don't need to bring home a, an Easter lily in order uh, you know, for for any particular reason, so I can I can live without that. And toxicities are, are something that uh, I think have caused me a, a bit of stress. I know that even I'll make an example for my own life. There's just been this rabbit that's just shown up in my yard, and I'm assuming it's uh, some sort of uh, wild critter, and that's totally fine. And I'm eager to be its friend. And so I've been thinking, well, what sort of foods can I leave? out for this rabbit. And cartoons have taught me that rabbits like carrots. So I thought, okay, baby carrots will be great. And then I thought, oh, well, then maybe rabbits can just have any old vegetable that I have around the house. And I thought I should, I probably should look that up. Hmm. And I found that actually some plant material is not really recommended for rabbits, including some things that I might have thought, oh, seems like a a logical thing for a rabbit to eat. So uh, perhaps the best thing animal owners and animal lovers can do is to just um, educate yourselves, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, make some small precautions like don't have sago palms and don't have lilies in the house if you have uh, dogs or cats. And um, maybe read up a little bit. Are there good resources for people online? Yeah, there's lots of resources online. Uh, the uh, poisoned uh, pet control uh, um, uh, there's the hotlines and uh, yeah, numerous resources. It doesn't take much to uh, Google, you know, top 10 poisonous plants to small and large animals. And I think people can readily find the information. And other sound advice, probably just when in doubt, call your veterinarian. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Chris Martinick from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, thank you so much for coming back in yeah, and talking you. to us today. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Richard Drake in the studio for running the show. I want to thank Sarah Carey and her staff over at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you, listeners. I'm Dana Hill. We'll be back next time with another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye. <laughs>